Good morning, again. If you want to turn to Psalm 52, that's where we're going to be for the majority of this lesson. Psalm 52. When you think about the Psalms, or at least when I think about the Psalms, you kind of think about how there's a lot of them that are seemingly disconnected or out of context. If you think about the Psalms, I mean, most of them don't really give you a lot about why they were written or when they were written or anything like that. Psalm 52 is different. Psalm 52 tells us exactly when it happened and why it happened in the sort of, if you've got one of the Bibles that has a sort of introduction to each psalm, your Psalm 52 may say something like, To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David is come to the house of Ahimelech. Now that may not mean a lot to you at first glance, uh, but this roots it in the context of a story we know a lot about. So this psalm comes at a time where David is on the run from King Saul. Saul is decided to persecute him simply because God has chosen David as his next king, and Saul doesn't like that. So Saul has sort of abandoned his kingship and he's taken his army and he's decided that his number one priority is to hunt that David kid down and take care of him. And so in the process of this, David has lost his home. He's on the run. He's living in caves. He's living in foreign lands. He's on, he's on the run. He's lost his best friend, Jonathan, who is Saul's son. His family's also on the run. His parents are having to live with the Moabites, with Gentiles, with idolaters. And his friends are on the run with him. There's 400 men that have also been displaced with David, along with their wives and families. And then this story happens. In 1 Samuel 21, I'm going to read verses 13 through 19. This is what the psalm is talking about. There's a whistleblower named Doeg the Edomite who says, Hey Saul, I know where David's been. David and his men found refuge with the priests at the city of Nob. And not only that... The priest gave him food, they gave him supplies, even a few weapons. Saul is furious. From Saul's perspective, these priests have committed treason. They have betrayed him, the king. And this is what happens next in 1 Samuel 21, verses 13 through 19. Saul said to Ahimelech the priest, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? 
Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first day that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all of the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep. He put to the sword. So right before this psalm is written, we see Saul come to the priests and say, you helped out David. And the priests say, well, yeah, David's your son-in-law, David's your trusted servant. Of course we helped him out. We do that all the time. And Saul says, no, you've helped him rise up against me and you have to die. And so this Doeg the Edomite kills 85 priests and no telling how many in the town that they lived. And that's where Psalm 52 is written. Imagine what David has to be feeling in this time. Say fear. Fear because the king and all of his army is coming after him. He's on the run. He's living in caves. He doesn't know if he's going to survive this, how he's going to survive this. I'd imagine David would be pretty afraid. Maybe anger. David didn't do anything wrong. He hadn't done anything against the law, and yet he's being treated like a criminal and like a fugitive. If I was David, I think I would have, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Angry at Saul. Maybe even angry at God. God, you told me I was your chosen king. It doesn't look very much like a kingship to me. What's the plan here? I think maybe one of the other things David might be feeling is he might be feeling guilt. There are 85 priests who died because they helped him. There's a whole town of people who are dead because the priests help him. His family's on the run. His friends are on the run. There's a lot of people who are being punished just because they like David. Imagine that'd be a pretty big weight to carry. That all of these people are suffering because of me. That's when Psalm 52 was written. But, unlike maybe we would expect, Psalm 52 isn't a psalm of fear or of anger. Psalm 52 is a psalm of confidence. Psalm 52 is a psalm of trust in God. And so we're going to look at the psalm today. 
because I have some questions for David. Namely, what do you have to be confident in right now? How can you be so, have so much trust in God at the lowest of low points? And Psalm 52 is going to give us a little bit of a peek into that. So if you want to read with me, we're just going to read the whole psalm again. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's take some time to really go through this and kind of break down what David's saying here. And we'll start by looking again at sort of the first four verses, the introduction to this psalm, where David is going to lay out very clearly what he's dealing with, what he's going up against. Read again the first four verses of the psalm with me. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You're, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Notice what David is saying here. David is very honest about what he's going up against. He doesn't ignore his situation. He doesn't try to pretend like it's not happening. He's honest in his trials. He talks of Doeg and Saul and those trying to kill him as boasting in evil and sin, as loving destruction and lies. But David's also very practical about their threat to him. Even though they are evil, David calls these men mighty. And some commentaries or books that you look at, they'll say, well, David's being completely sarcastic here. He's making fun of these guys that are attacking him. I don't think that's the case. I think David very well acknowledges that by earthly standards, the people coming after him are mighty. The people coming after him are the king and his whole army. By earthly standards, that's about the worst situation you can possibly be in. David says their words bring destruction. They cut like razor blades. They devour. 
I don't think this is the language of David making fun of these people. I think this is the language of David saying, from an earthly perspective, my situation's pretty bad. But, notice what it all turns on. The end of verse 1. David acknowledges the steadfast love of God endures all the day. David says, even though my situation is terrible, and it is, I know God's love is there all day, every day. God is showing his steadfast love to me even now in this terrible situation. And that's what this psalm hinges on. We've talked a lot about God's steadfast love recently. But God's steadfast love is the key again to this psalm. We're going to see God's steadfast love is what's going to take David from this terrible situation, from fear, from anger, from guilt, all the way to the confidence that we're going to see at the end of the psalm. Let's look at what David says God's steadfast love is going to do in verses 5 through 7 again. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. As we talked about just a few seconds ago, David's confidence is built on the trustworthiness of God's love. And notice what David says God's love is going to do. God's love is going to punish those who are oppressing David. God is going to punish the murderers. God is going to punish the violent. God is going to punish the prideful and oppressive. That's what God's love is going to do. But then on the flip end of that, with this judgment, is also going to bring salvation. David says, God's love is going to establish me. It is going to bring me refuge. It is going to bring me blessings in this time of justice. David says, the righteous will stand firm. He kind of paints this picture of of this judgment that comes fast. You're not going to see it coming. To use the New Testament picture, it's going to be like a thief in the night. God is going to snatch the proud from their house. He's going to uproot them. He's going to throw them away. They're not going to see it coming. But in that time of judgment will come a time of salvation and deliverance for God's people. The righteous will see this judgment and they will stand happy and blessed, sort of laughing at how small all of the trials were because God has finally delivered his people. David says in the end, the righteous will be delivered, they will be justified, they will be happy, they will be blessed. Why? Not because they're so great or amazing, but because they chose not to take pride in themselves, but to have confidence that God will be their refuge. David says, here's the confidence you can have in God's love. 
that no matter what you go through in this life, no matter how awful it is, and from David's perspective, it's pretty awful. No matter what happens, you can take refuge in knowing that those who trust God and humbly follow him, God's going to deliver them every single time. And that's really what the conclusion of this psalm focuses on. That's what I think is sort of the the perfect example of it. If you want to look again at verses 8 and 9, notice what David says here. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David's confidence is that God will reverse his fortunes. He will lift him up even though he suffers in this life. God is going to humble the proud, but when he does this, he will lift up the lowly and the oppressed. God is going to bring comfort and deliverance and blessings to those who are struggling for his sake. God is going to bring comfort and salvation and life to his people. And I think the picture that David uses to tell that is beautiful. That David is like a tree that is planted in the house of God. And not just any tree, it's a green tree. The tree's still growing. The idea that David has been planted as a tree that's not fully mature yet, but it is growing in God's presence, in his tabernacle. And God almost takes the, the, the role of the gardener tending to the tree Sometimes pruning it, but ultimately helping it grow. All in his house. You see, the picture that David brings here is that he can find life and growth and purpose in God. And notice the confidence that he has when he says this. Verse 9, I think, is the key to the whole thing. This is what I want you to take away. If you only get one thing from this whole psalm, listen to the way that David says this. I will thank you forever because you have saved me. When David wrote this psalm, God had not saved him yet. When David wrote this psalm, he was in the lowest of lows. David didn't know if he was going to survive. David didn't know what was going to happen. And yet, he had such a confidence in the love of God, in his steadfast love, in his blessings, in his life-giving deliverance, He spoke about it like it was a done deal. I know I'm going to thank you because I know you're going to do it. I know that I'm going to praise you because I know you will have saved me. David has 100% confidence that God will deliver him and bring him through his trials because that's who God is, because that's his steadfast love. 
we can trust it to the point of knowing no matter what we go through, God is going to save and deliver his people. And some of that David has already had personal experience with. David's already been saved from bears and lions and from Goliath and from all these crazy big things. And yet David says, I know you have saved me and I know you will save me. That's the confidence that David had. That's what this whole psalm shifts on. How David goes from this fear, from this guilt, from this anger, this horrible situation he's in, all the way to comfort and life is a trust that God's steadfast love will deliver him before it even happens. That's the message of Psalm 52. I just want to talk for a few minutes about what we can do with it together. And the first thing is what we just talked about. We need to completely trust God's power to deliver and to save. I've said it a billion times, but I think it's worth saying one more time. Think of the situation David was in. He is on the run. He is a criminal, even though he's done nothing wrong. And the whole army is coming after him. It's not a good place to be. His only shelter was barren caves and in enemy nations. By worldly standards, David was hopeless, and yet he has complete hope. Because David knows who God is. David knows the importance and the magnitude of God's steadfast love. David knows that God loves so intensely that even if I can't see my way out of this situation, I know God's already done it. Because that's who my God is. David's confidence isn't in him. It's not that I'm such a good warrior, I'm such a good general, that I'm going to lead us all out of this. David's confidence isn't, I'm sure Saul will just forget about everything and we'll move on. No, David's confidence is no matter what happens, I know that God has already worked a solution for me because that's who he is. He is a loving, trustworthy God who is faithful to his people and faithful to his promises. In Ephesians 3, Paul is about to talk about praying for the Ephesian brethren. And he asks God a lot for them. He asks God to bless them abundantly with love and knowledge and growth. Paul asks a lot of God in this prayer, but before he does that, he speaks a little bit about the attitude that we can have in prayer. And that's what I really want to focus on. If you're in Ephesians 3, I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul, like David, he doesn't diminish the suffering. He doesn't pretend like it's not happening. 
He doesn't discount it. But what he does do is he says, we can hold confidence in prayer. We can come to God's throne in boldness. I want you to think about that. We sing the song sometimes with the kids, Our God is so big. And for a long time, I didn't like the phrasing of that. Big just felt like it felt like such a, I don't know, it it felt like such a, well, maybe a childish word to describe God. God is so big. But the more I thought about it, the more I couldn't think of a better word. Because our God is so big. He is all-powerful. He's created everything. He has the whole world in his hands. All I can think of is song quotes right now. And yet, he allows us to come to him in boldness. We're nothing before God. And yet, he wants us to have confidence in our relationship with him. Don't skip over that. That is access that is just unthinkable. That our God, who controls everything, allows us to have boldness and confidence in our relationship with Him, in our trust in Him, so that we can pray to Him and ask crazy big things. And do it confidently. We can ask him to save us and deliver us. And even if like David, it looks hopeless by man's standards, we can have faith in it. Because that's how great our God is. Our prayers are not arrogant. Confidence in prayer is not arrogant. That faith is not in us. That somehow we are powerful or worthy. The prayer is that we can come to God in boldness because, like David, we know who our God is. Because, like David, we trust his love, we trust his power, we trust his deliverance, and that allows us to pray with confidence because we know he will deliver because he's already done it. We will thank him because he's already done it. And we know that. David says that those who are lifted up, those who are delivered, are those who hold God as their refuge. Hold him as a shelter through times of trial. Those that latch on to him. And that's all I really want us to see from Psalm 52. We don't have to worry about bringing everything we have to God. We don't have to worry about being vulnerable to God because God asks us to do that. God tells us we can have confidence in our relationship with him. That's his design. So pray big. Pray bold, pray confidently, not in us, but in the power and steadfast love and trustworthiness of our God.
That's not to say we're not going to go through trials in this world. I know we will. It's not to say we won't suffer. I know we will. It's not even to tell us that we can't feel those feelings of fear and guilt and anger and hopelessness. David has plenty of psalms that talk about those emotions. You will feel fear sometimes. You will fear hopelessness sometimes. You will feel anger sometimes. All of God's people do. But what I want us to see is the path forward. The path forward is that relationship, that trust in God's love. That no matter what happens now, we know he will deliver us. And the last thing I want to talk about just for a few seconds, and then the lesson will be yours. Looking again at verse 8. David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. David pictures himself as a tree growing in God's presence. I want us to take comfort in our relationship with God. I want us to take comfort in drawing near to the presence of God. And that doesn't just mean in worship service, although that's one application for sure. I want you to take comfort in prayer. Take comfort in singing hymns to yourself as you go through the day. Take comfort in reading the Bible. Take comfort in just sitting and thinking about who our God is and why he is so great. Take comfort in talking to God about other pe- with other people. Take comfort in growing closer with the family here. God has given us so many ways to strengthen that tie and that relationship to him. But I know that in the midst of the trials, it's really easy to distance ourselves from God. It's easy to isolate ourselves from his people. I think that's a temptation directly from Satan. I just plead with you as we go through these trials that we're going to go through, and some of us are going through them right now. Look for opportunities to be in God's presence. Because when we come to God's presence, we can have the confidence that he will plant us like a tree before him. He will make sure that we grow. He will make sure that we stay strong. He will make sure that we stay alive. And we will have complete confidence that no matter what happens, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he leads us through. And we will thank him forever because he has already done it. That's the story of Psalm 52. I know we don't normally, we don't normally say a prayer in these sessions, but I, I, think it's, I think it's appropriate. And so I just want to take a few minutes to say a prayer together. Father, we thank you forever because you have delivered us and will deliver us again. We will thank you forever for your overflowing, abundant, eternal, steadfast love. We will thank you forever for your faithfulness and for letting us be a people and letting us find refuge in you.
We will thank you forever for letting us be like growing trees planted in your presence and planted in worship to you. Father, you know we have many sick, we have many struggling in our number. There are many people in this family that are hurting right now. We boldly ask that you heal them. Not in arrogance, not in confidence in ourselves, but a confidence in who you are. Because we know that you are a God that delivers your people. We thank you for that deliverance and salvation because we know you have already done it. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen. So if you're struggling right now, if you're going through trials, let's cling to trust in God. Let's cling to our relationship with Him. And I don't know what that looks like for you. If you've never joined into a relationship with Him, you can repent of your sins. You can come to Him in baptism for the remission of your sins. You can get started living that faithful life. For a lot of us, that means remembering what we already know. For a lot of us, that means restarting what we've already once started. Coming back to God. Coming back to prayer. Coming back to study. Coming back to a relationship with Him. I don't know how we can help you with that. But if you need help, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. Whatever your need, feel free to come to the front as we stand and as we sing.